you're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 12. We're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. Hello. Hi, how are you this week? Great. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing well. And are you fermenting anything? I don't think you are, are you? Um, no, I I did have a failure of my ginger bug. It failure. Not... Was it a failure or did you tell me that you just weren't actually feeding it? I was like pets. I was feeding it, just not every day, um, maybe every other. And a couple of times I skipped to third day. But um, yeah, I think I just need to start over. So I'm not fermenting anything. Um, and my ginger bug failed on me. So I have to restart up a new, uh, start a new one. Um, it's important to remember these are like pets. You have to take care of them and you have to take care of them regularly. You can't just, oh, I'm not going to feed it today. No, I know, but um, my kombucha with oranges turned out very well. I don't know that I talked about this last time. Very delicious. I'm like you a like lot. Oranges better than lemons. Yes, I do. Lemons kind of because kombucha already has that tart flavor, um, just by fermentation. Um, add a little bit more of that tartness, which I think some people would probably enjoy. But for me, I like the oranges in it more because then it has that orange flavor and it wasn't a start. So yeah, for anyone that's interesting. Just cut up some oranges, put them in the second stage of the fermentation process once it's bottled up. And I had a full orange in um, half a gallon, and it was great. It was delicious. I just left the oranges there the whole time, um, probably for a week. That's how long it took me to drink the whole half a gallon. And In the refrigerator, though, right? Well, yeah, storing it in the refrigerator. Um, but I did leave the oranges out in the second stage for a couple of days. And then after that refrigerated the bottle, but yeah, really good. So my next, my next project, which I probably am going to start, um, sometime this week is also starting a new kombucha with, um, strawberries. I did realize I just need to kind of, once I make a drink, start a new process right away and I tend to wait until I'm done drinking my drinks and then I and then you have like another two weeks before... yeah and it's it's a little yeah it's a little sad so right now I'm probably not gonna have anything to drink for a while until I well for one get my a new ginger bug going because one failed and start a new kombucha batch so fermentation yeah. is easy but it does take discipline I guess if you're trying to yeah. keep up on things and I'm you know I'm kind of Somewhere in between. I'm not like ridiculously disciplined with all of that. Um, but then, I mean, I'm not completely not doing it. I just tend to, like I said, wait until I'm out of my drink to be like, oh, I need to make more. And then I have to wait a while, which, you know, but it's okay. What about you? Oranges make me think of apples and oranges. And I've been flavoring my water kefir with apples. So we'll just... Oranges make you think of apples and oranges. Apples and oranges. Different topic. I mean, kombucha. Good, good transition, though. But kefir, go ahead. And water kefir. So I really don't like water kefir that much because it's too sweet for me. But I found that maybe I just don't allow it to ferment long enough. So I've tossed some apples in there. And I've seen recommendations for if you're going to put fresh fruits in to remove them every day and add new ones. I didn't do that. I think it's probably, you know, possibly adding to a, a mild ethanol level or whatnot. But it's more than anything just tastes good after the apples have sat in it for about a week, week and a half on the countertop. After the f initial fermentation with the water kefir grains, a couple days with that, then putting that sugar water that's been lightly fermented, add the apples to it, and it tastes really good after a while. Like, a lot of the sweetness goes away, which I really enjoy, and then it's very kind of strange. After a little while, the the sweetness starts to, to dissipate, and then as, like, after a week and a half or so, the apples started browning slightly finely, which was weird that they didn't start before that being cut. 
but I guess being in the sugar water kind of held that off or with that slight lactic acid in it maybe held off the browning but then once they started to brown then the sweetness of the apples just came out and it popped and it so tasted great. So it is a great. sweet drink? No, not sweet but like flavorful like a like a watered down apple juice but in a good kind like watered down things don't generally sound good but this is a good kind of watered down like it's just it's very nice and mild. It's like a fruit water and it it tastes great. I wouldn't think that apple with as mild of a taste as that kind of would impart with one apple in a in a two quarts of water kefir water but it turned out well. Yeah, I I think for me and maybe I haven't had a good batch of water kefir. Water kefir plain, it's not it's not my favorite. Um it just tastes just too much like sugar water and I guess from what I've had it's not it hasn't been super bubbly and maybe I'm assuming there are ways to make it really bubbly and maybe I would enjoy it more. Um but yeah, I am not a huge fan of just plain water. Kefir. Water kefir does seem to have smaller bubbles. I don't know anything about the science behind that, why that might be, but it just seems but like there's just, smaller bubbles. Is this your experience? My experience with my specific have kefir you, grains, water kefir grains. Other... I, no, I don't know for certain, but the ones that I have are a small bubbles. They're just tiny little bubbles and they get much more effervescent the longer it sits. Obviously with those apples or whatnot, after like a week and a half to two weeks, it was more bubbly, but it's still very mild on the palate. It's not like a bunch of like sharp bubbles. Like it's not like uh, carbonated mineral water. You know, it's not like that. Well, yeah, really and I think bite. that's what I think that's maybe why I'm not really drawn to it either. Because I haven't had any water kefir that's been really bubbly. But any of you listeners out there, if you have experience making water kefir um, and you can get it really bubbly, please do let us know your process. Yeah. And it, and there probably are different. I mean, it's going to produce differently depending on, on how it's fed, what kind of water it has, what kind of sugar it has. A lot of different things are going to affect how it's going to taste. So or, or, a taste and then also how well it's going to ferment and ambient temperature as well. So it's possible that mine are just tiny little bubbles. Other people have big ones. And uh, the interesting thing with it is that, I mean, you can ferment it with fruits in it, but I just like to do the, the second fermentation stage, kind of like you're doing with your kombucha. And I just like it to keep the kefir grains clean. No, some that makes will, sense. Those some people will ferment them in little bags as well. Yeah, um, but like put the kefir grains in a little bag and then put it into the water, ferment sugar water, ferment it, then pull the bag out. They might have fruit in there too, so that way that they keep the grains separate oh, okay. from the fruit, so you don't well, have to feed it. Or when they up. have excess grains, you know. I'm assuming. Are are you planning to experiment once you are have a more of a more grains to work with, or do do kefir grains grow like milk grains? Yeah, milk and there's kefir? ways to get them to grow more supposedly. So I just haven't again been very excited about water kefir grains, so I've kind of put it off. But I tried putting some. Strawberries aren't in season here in, in Wisconsin right now, so I tried putting some frozen strawberries, and we'll see how that works. It seems to be getting a little bubbly and, and oh, that'd smells, be interesting, smells yeah. good, but we'll see how those ones turn yeah, out as well. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to experimenting more with water kefir grains myself, too, just to try and come up with something more exciting, because right now I'm just not too excited about it, um, but I am also, I really love just kefir, milk kefir, so... And you can get that stuff very bubbly. And maybe that's why, maybe that's because that was the first thing I tried. And so when I did finally try water kefir grains, I was kind of expecting a similar, which makes no sense because they're not the same thing, but a similar outcome with the bubbliness and, and fizziness and it just wasn't there. So I was kind of just disappointed. Something else that I was kind of disappointed in was uh, a little bit of follow-up for the solar oven idea for making black garlic that I was talking about last episode. Yes. It wouldn't work. 
What wouldn't work? Oh, your solar oven? No, it wouldn't work because there's not consistent temperatures. I would not be able to keep it at 140 degrees consistently. I don't even know how consistently I'd be able to keep it at any temperature. I'd need to be constantly moving panels and moving things. That just shows my ignorance for how solar ovens work and what how what they're good for. And so I don't think they would be good for that kind of thing. But I did find a Instructables uh, article on how to make black garlic, a very detailed explanation of how someone's doing it. And instead of 30 days, it looks like they're going for about 40 days, but they're just making a little oven that's using a heat lamp and um, insulating that. Just building a little oven with a heat lamp and then using a, a thermometer probe and thermostat regulator to keep the temperature at 140 degrees for 40 days. And so if you're interested, I actually found that there was a blog post related to the Instructables, and uh, I'll link to the blog post from a culinary blog, and that's culinary with a K. And so I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes at firmup.com slash firmup slash 12. And it's just nice and interesting. I think I'll try it eventually. But again, I've got to be able to devote my uh, my probe. I have a, a Johnson's controller thermostat probe, and I use that for making yogurts uh, in my little I actually could use the incubator that I built for yogurt because it's larger to be able to fit other things in as well. I could actually use that for the garlic making as well. Just put a heat lamp in there as opposed to a light bulb or possibly have a higher wattage light bulb in there as well. But it was... Well, I'm assuming you'd also have to be kind of not going anywhere for 40 days. You wouldn't want that plugged in the whole time and leave, right? I think that I'd probably... I mean, it's it, like this guy sets it up in his garage, so I well, feel still, comfortable though. enough... Not uh, like I'd feel comfortable. No, I mean enough. like leaving the house for a short time, just not like going on a trip, though. Sure, yes. So it'd have to be forty days and forty nights of just not leaving anywhere out of town. But even the garage is a little scary, though. Yeah, I think it's. It, I mean, it's still really relatively low heat. I think it'd be okay. I mean, it's like a dehydrator temperatures. Would it? What about like doing something? See, this is where I'm just so paranoid. I would be afraid if I was to attempt this. That where. Which is set on fire. Um, like, what about like doing the same thing but waiting till summer and maybe doing it outside? Would that work? Or not even outside? What about like a, having the oven outside? Or like in a shed or something? Yeah, I just I, something about having something plugged in for that long that's attached to a an apartment or a house it just doesn't seem right to me. It scares me a little. Things can go out of whack and can burn down the place down. Well, I mean, yes, that could happen, but there's always that risk of anything that's electronic and running constantly. Sure. I mean, at 140 degrees isn't enough to ignite anything from my, again, non-knowledgeable standpoint. I mean, non-expertise <laughs> standpoint. That's um, good. Way to reassure the public. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't be that concerned about it as long as, yes, pay attention to it. Um, but, uh, and I did say it was dehydrator temperatures. The, inter- the, the thing that is important is the reason why a dehydrator may not work is for one it's not that insulated and it's about getting humidity out whereas for those first 30 days or so at least it's actually you want to keep the moisture in the garlic and that's how they blacken and and ferment like that i mean fermentation needs moisture if something's dehydrated it's not going to ferment so um even though it's ferment uh dehydrator temperatures like i was making some granola bars at 135 degrees for eight hours um you know so just 
do that kind of thing, extend it for a longer period of time and keep the garlic sealed and make sure there's enough humidity. It's in the last steps that you actually dry it. So good article, check it out. Um, going back to the kombucha stuff real quick. I did follow up like you, um, like you had requested last episode or the one before that about getting that article about how to grow your own SCOBY from a bottle of store-bought kombucha. So you can check that out in the show notes as well. But today, this is a food fermentation podcast, just to be clear. And this is not really outside of our of the scope of our podcast, but we want to talk about the gut microbiota because probiotics and the bacteria involved in our bodies that are showing more and more how things work come up a lot when people are talking about fermented foods. This isn't a health podcast. This isn't like we're... But we're it's just, related. I mean, it, it is. It is related. fermentation is all about the microbes in the gut. Yes, and and it's uh, the only reason why I would say it's not necessarily completely related is in the sense that there's still a lot that needs to be understood about whether you know commercial probiotics are going to alter the gut more than probiotic or live cultured foods such as sauerkraut and yogurts and different things like that. There are some studies out there that uh, lean towards a diverse diet of many cultured foods, much to the same as many cultures throughout the world have, have had, they have, you know, they don't just eat yogurt for their probiotic benefits. They eat yogurt and sauerkraut and, and, um, sausage and all kinds of things. So they're getting different kinds of bacteria. There's other research out there that questions how much of that live active bacteria actually gets into the gut. And now the gut is only one of the important places. There's also the, the mouth and the, the ear um, canal, I mean, the skin, I mean, there's, there's bacteria everywhere. But one of the, you know, important numbers that gets thrown around a lot these days is that there's 10 times as many bacteria in our bodies, bacterial cells in our bodies, as there are human cells. So we are bacteria. Which makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, well, we kind of co-evolved with them. The reason why the, uh, we decided to have a discussion about this today is because there was just over in Spain, there was a um, a conference. It was the, the Gut Microbiota for Health, and it was the Second World Summit. And you can find more information at gutmicrobiotaforhealth.com. You can also find that in the show notes. But they, uh, they just closed that up this last week, weekend. And, um, you know, I... Like, I found it really intriguing what they were talking about with uh, fecal transplants. And I know that that may seem kind of gross and nothing to do with food, but it kind of does. And I I wrote a blog post about um, fecal transplants and yogurt because they are Way to make someone want to read that. What's that? Way to to make someone want to read that. Because it includes the word yogurt in it? I was just like, yeah, I mean, the two together. They, might, they have more similarities than you might think. I agree And I'm there. not talking about yogurt affecting feces. Feces, poop, you know, let's just get it out of the way. I mean, we're going to be talking about poop today. But, um, <laughs> so, oh, so, you, you got know, your laugh warning. Out, and now let's just, let's just approach this. There's, you know, it's, um, there was a, during the press conference, one of the, professors that was was talking about these fecal transplants, uh, Lawrence J. Brandt talked about stool being the ultimate probiotic because it's full of bacteria. And it's the gut bacteria that, you know, that is being marketed 
to people in all these different single strains of bacteria or these different foods. So it's really interesting for people that have um, compromised gut microbiota. My microbiota is, you may have heard at one point, the term um, flora, you know, stomach flora, gut flora. But it's kind of... Is that just like a nicer way of referring to that? More pretty? No, the, the more... The, the, more recent terminology for that is calling it the microbiota, you know, microbiome of our, our bodies. And oh, so, okay. so stool is interesting. Feces, poop, it's interesting because um, if someone takes antibiotics or for whatever reason just doesn't develop a ecosystem, because that's what we're really talking about. A microbiota is an ecosystem. If they don't develop the ecosystem of bacteria that is balanced out because it's kind of a battle between good and bad. In the blog post I wrote, I was talking about if if the gut were a comic book city, it would be Gotham City. And I say that because it's like, you know, you can imagine the good bacteria are kind of like the Batmans. Um, and then you've got all the bad bacteria like Joker and, and all the other um, characters that are, you know, the underbelly of Gotham City. And they just are, you know, battling it out in the streets and things can go wrong. Usually the good bacteria, usually Batman can keep the gut microbiota in check, keep things balanced because the good bacteria are good at balancing and keeping the host in good health because the host is their world. And so it's um, and not that they're doing it for those reasons, but you know, they're good at keeping a host healthy and then they, they get to develop and, and grow and expand and, and do their thing in the gut. But sometimes antibiotics or otherwise can get in the way. When that happens, some of the bad bacteria can take over because good bacteria, bad bacteria both get knocked out by antibiotics. Um, Which would, so that would just, does that, I mean, it appears that then um, bad bacteria kind of takes over because the good bacteria is wiped out antibiotics, right? So it's kind of antibiotics almost appear to be in favor of bad bacteria. No, not necessarily. It's really? just that okay. when when someone takes certain antibiotics, some more so than others, will have a negative effect on the gut microbiota because it, it you know, wipes out a lot of the bacteria. Then it's a clean slate. And then it just depends on whatever can take over first. Less so than it being favoring bad bacteria. So it's not always that the bad bacteria will take over. It could no, be the good one too. And then maybe consuming people, fermented foods. Because I've taken, I've, I've had to take antibiotics before. I'm not anti-antibiotics. No, no, I'm not either. In some situations it's necessary, but just a good, I'm assuming not overdoing it, which seems to be not the case in this day Well, and yes, age. There, there's definitely um, supposedly over prescribing of antibiotics and that has some effect. But what I'm talking about specifically with this is that someone takes antibiotics. Some people are going to get affected one way. Other people are going to get affected another way. But one of the uh, diseases of the gut is uh, an overabundance of Clostridium difficile. And C. difficile is something that fecal transplants can really help with. So someone has bad bacteria that have taken over the gut. A little bit of an oversimplification. But... Then what's not an oversimplification is they take stool from a donor and put that in their gut, put that in their, um, you know, they they can take it a few different ways, upper tract or lower tract of 
insertion. A perch track just sounds not it's, right. When you're talking about I understand. depositing feces or stool in through the mouth, yes. it's going through tubes. So, so uh, to avoid the taste. I mean, animals eat poop. I mean, it's it's something that they might do. They may are probably not necessarily doing it for probiotic so health. They're doing it for nutrients because there's nutrient, like especially according to this uh, Professor Brandt, he talked about how stool is nutrient dense. It has a lot of nutrients in it. It's just it happens to be something that humans, not all animals, but humans specifically have an aversion to. Which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Kind of smells. Most likely tastes a little weird. I don't really know. <laughs> I hope but so. But I can only imagine. But then again, there's some cheeses that smell horrible, that taste amazing. Are you implying that poop could taste good? It could, but I do not want to find out. You know, I wonder how that would work out because, of course, I'm sure anyone that knows, okay, I'm going to try poop, they would have right away have that pre-set uh, or like their mindset would be, well, I'm going to gag or puke or, you know, but really like, I wonder, not that I ever want to try this, you know, have someone try something like try this piece of meat or I don't know how you could disguise poop. Like try this and, and let me know what you think. I'm just so curious to know how people would react. I don't think they want to test this, but it would be a, a really entertaining, I'm sure, uh, experiment. Well, I do have a little bit of a recipe for how to do a, a fecal transplant, but before But I... really quickly, before you get into the recipe, I did have a question about this because you say that that's the way to cure this when someone has, uh, you know, does it, has bad bacteria that's taken over their system or gut. Before this, because this seems to be a, a relatively newer way of curing the issue. I don't know. I don't know. If I Cure is always a strong word. I don't know um, if you say cure, but yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, fixing it or whatever. How... Or do you know how this was done previously? What did they do previously to, to for someone who didn't have... Antibiotics. A... But are, that doesn't... There are some... Again, this is... It'd be an overgeneralization to say antibiotics in general are just going to knock everything out and it's going to be bad. Antibiotics have their place and they can affect things. But antibiotics versus fecal transplants, fecal transplants right now, given the research, given the, the data out there, seems to be the stronger... Um, Give stronger results. Better results. Yes. Faster results. Oh, definitely faster. Because what we're talking about is someone gets a fecal transplant from a healthy donor. Which a transplant alone, it just means showing up poop up your... <laughs> yes, it's something very similar to that. Um, a transplant sounds much more intense, which in this situation doesn't seem that... No, it's pretty pretty basic. and but it's But we're talking about a fecal transplant from a healthy donor. And it doesn't actually matter who that is. At one point, they thought that it should be someone that's close, like a husband and wife or a family member. Is there or something a reason? Be because they had been surrounded around similar bacteria a lot of their life or at least a few years. So that makes they thought a difference. Now it's showing at least the research and studies are showing that it really doesn't matter who the poop comes from. As long as they're healthy, they don't have any um, you know, signs of disease, they aren't in any of the preconditioned lifestyles that could cause more issue which which was interesting i mean it's like that includes um uh you know prostitutes and gay guys i mean i i guess that sounds really discriminatory it does sound really discriminatory and i i, I and i think it's just that they're just going for the simplest like fewest chances of being predisposed towards um different issues or okay, different you health issues test someone and even you if think, they are... but i think that it it comes down to i don't really think I don't think it's probably that hard to source poop. 
So I, I don't I think they probably can be a little bit discriminatory. Not I, I mean, yeah, that's that seems kind of weird because Didn't you comment about this stating, oh, maybe this will be a new college craze. Well, yeah, like there's donor banks. Going. I mean, like, do you think that they'll like, you know, that would be pretty funny. I'm going to go poop and get paid for it. Hey, poop for pay. I mean, it's like it's even got a nice slogan to it. Um, <laughs> that's actually true. And, uh, you know, blood banks. But right now they don't have paid. that thought, right? Uh, I do not believe so. Okay. But uh, but we're talking. Stand by. We'll update you if this ever becomes a big craze. Yes, we'll be sure to do that. And we'll be the first in line to donate <laughs> our poop. Um you know, because arguably maybe we have healthy poop. I mean, again, studies are up in the air as to like how much fermented foods are going to make a difference. But hey, it can't hurt. And I, I kind of wonder what what's in my poop. Um, and uh, but so someone gets the donor transplant. It can happen within hours that they're they feel better. Um, C. difficile. I'm not exactly sure all of the issues like, like diarrhea and um, discomfort and a lot of different things. I don't think it's a life threatening disease, at least for people that's like relatively healthy immune systems. But Are those the symptoms of some of the diso- de- oh, okay. C. Difficile. C. Period. Difficile. But uh, within hours, you know, within uh, within days and most within six days. So it's a drastic improvement in something that's just a quick, relatively simple, easy thing to do. They test the poop before they shove it in there too but they uh um yeah the, i mean it's it, but they you, don't advise you do this at home no don't try this at home but if if you are curious i did put in the the blog post as well uh, some different like the different steps and, and just so you know how simple this process is that they're really doing um and it was laid out in this this press conference um professor brant was talking about basically you're just step one chop a stool sample down to 2.5 to 3 inches in length for a normal size stool. Really? Are you really going to give us a recipe for this right now? You are crazy. That, Go ahead. No, it's just how simple it is. Didn't you mix it by hand or in a blender? Which would you do? Hand or blender? <laughs> um, Food processor? A stick. A stick. Okay. And then you pour the mixture through gauze or some other kind of sieve. So you can, you know, just use your colander or something, sieve it through just, just to get out of it. I would probably recommend throwing this out after use. Yeah, I wonder if they give like prescriptions as to what someone should eat beforehand because you know it's like if if I eat beets or you know it's like I don't like fully chew like peas or something or corn or something you know it's like I guess that's what you're sieving out I don't know but then <laughs> you um, are going to uh, draw the stool sample the the sieved uh, stool sample through a syringe and then you take that syringe and either put it in a tube uh, or connect it to a tube and put it down the throat or. You oh, stick it up as far as it can reach and uh, deposit the stool into the sample. Mm. It should only take one to two minutes to deposit the full syringe. So are these people like fully awake when this procedure is done? I do not know. But I I'm think I would so. have to be like put to sleep or something. I could not see them putting poop down my throat. I'm like, I put me out. Yeah, I don't. I, that, but that, that that process that process is super simple. I mean, that really is something that don't do it at home. But something that's like, I mean, there's nothing really that special. Yes, they're testing this stuff and doing everything like this. But you know, if it's like a close family member, it's like that guy you were talking about in that one article that um, stuck his finger into one ear that was the healthy ear and put his earwax into the unhealthy ear, and then his other ear was helped. It's that same helped healed <laughs> healed. Yes, um, I. It's fascinating how something's so simple. Now, how this relates to yogurt, because it does, is in how the yogurt has the process of backslopping. So you take the previous batch of yogurt and use some of that to culture the next batch of 
fresh milk. And then that fresh milk turns into yogurt. It's the same kind of concept. You're taking, you know, that 2.5 to 3 inches of poop, which is your starter culture. And you're culturing a stomach that's unbalanced. And now I guess the differences are with something like Bulgarian yogurt, you heat it up, especially if you're dealing with raw milk, heat it up to uh, to wipe out the population. You don't have to make yogurt. You can make raw milk yogurt without heating it up. It's not going to be as thick. And it's generally better to have a mother culture going on the side. But back to this, it's you... you you wipe out the bacteria. So that's the only thing that's different is those like, so, so the stool sample must have such a strong balanced bacterial starter culture in it that it doesn't matter that you can't heat up the gut to wipe out the other bacteria in it. It just takes over I don't even and think attacks. I don't even think they're uh, giving antibiotics beforehand. I don't think they're doing a round of antibiotics to wipe someone's gut out and then pumping in the, no, the stool sample it in and, the and it's enough are... and it's strong enough and and you to a certain extent you can do that with yogurt too i mean you can make raw milk yogurt it's just eventually going to kind of not it wouldn't perpetuate forever because eventually some other bacteria may take over but the success rate of this shows that like you know just toss it in mix it up and it works and so that's very similar to to fecal transplants the interesting thing is that professor brandt was talking about how you could potentially one day just have different pills with different probiotic strains instead of doing stool, which is kind of archaic, kind of. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. No, I think it's, it's great. Simple works quickly. Why not? Well, I, I well, yeah, but the, like to be able to very uh, finely pinpoint specific issues and give like take the red pill for C. difficile, take the blue pill for some other gut. But what's wrong disease. with just taking all of it in? If it's beneficial, why well, do you I have to the, pick point? Well, that's that's where it, it, the the question comes in. I'm sure there are some benefits, and there probably are reasons why someone may not want to wipe out the entire bacteria uh, and and like reseed it with something new, backslop it with with a new um, new version of it. But that's where it kind of gets into direct set cultures versus heirloom yogurt cultures. So with direct set, it's about isolating bacteria, the bacteria that you get for a very specific, consistent results that is great for commercial use. And then you'd have heirloom yogurts, which have been passed down generation to generation to generation that sure they evolve and change slightly, but it's so much slower. And it's a kind of yogurt that you can backslop to grandchildren and in like past generation, like that yogurt can outlive that yogurt culture can outlive a person. But if you take the direct set yogurts and try to perpetuate that over and over again, eventually you're not going to have regular yogurt. And I've talked about this many different times, but this is. The similar, it makes me think about, okay, well, how does that connect to fecal transplants? If they're just going to isolate out certain bacteria, similar to how they isolate out bacteria in the laboratory for direct set yogurt starters, will that have the same lasting effect? Because for some people, this isn't fully lasting, whereas they can get results in six days. It's not necessarily that, you know, years down the line, they may need another dose of poop. But in, in, for, but it is long-term uh, results. What would it be if they're using a direct set poop starter? Basically, would it have the same results? It may work just like it works in the commercial industry for I yogurt making. We're talking about direct set poop starter. Hey, I mean, maybe we could come up with a new product. Um, really? Go ahead. You experiment with it. That's all right. I'll leave that to the scientists that know a lot more about this than I do. I just find this stuff kind of fascinating because it, it does kind of link into food and. Definitely, uh, you know, some of the 
research out there is showing that it does really link to food. And so just to kind of go away from the Microbiota for Health Summit, just some other articles, recent articles that were out. I mean, there was there was a very simplified article on um, Yahoo News that was actually kind of, you know, it goes over some of the basics of microbiota and bacteria in us. And so do you need to know this if you're going to be fermenting foods? No. So it is, though, I think just fascinating. This is part of what really fascinates me about fermented foods because fermented foods obviously involve bacteria, yeast, and molds. And are very much alive. That are very much alive. And it's just like our bodies are full of these living things as well, well and you know cover what? us. What I'm just wondering is, I wonder a lot if you can tell, but it's kind of like, you know, if it seems like this is an all new discovery of bacteria is good, most of it is good, not very much of it is bad. When will, I wonder if there will be that day when like those antibacterial wipes are going to just go out of business or won't be on shelves anymore and how long it's going to take before people realize that really you shouldn't be purchasing that stuff. Well, even though good bacteria has been known of for a long time, it's only been very recently that in science literature that that's really been the focus. Because when germs were first discovered, it was, it was thought like, that... wipe we, it all. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just very interesting how this is all kind of evolving. But it's very becoming a very popular aspect of science. Well, because it works. I mean, it's not... I don't, yeah, I mean, it is. And that's why I wonder. It's I wonder when... You know, because so much, even today, I mean, this is relatively new. It's, you know, people are like, oh, I like my antibacterial this, wipes that, clean, kill germs, everything, you know. Um, so I'm just, it, it, you know, hopefully not too far off in the future. Yeah, I mean, it, well, and so here's just kind of a breakdown of a lot of the things that come in with bacteria. And this this is, you know, from an article, Body Bugs and the Five Surprising Facts About Your Microbiome. Um very simple article, but it goes over a lot of the different things. And one of the, the first things is that you're born bacteria-free at birth. Um, there may be some other studies showing that that's not completely accurate. At least the placenta has some bacteria in it. But babies are generally thought to be born bacteria-free. So they get their bacteria um, from uh, the first bit comes from the birth canal. So passing through, being born. And then comes from, uh, you know, and so the fascinating thing with that is that cesarean section, um, they don't, a C-section doesn't have the same microbes as a vaginal birth. Well, I mean, I understand that makes sense if that's. Yeah, because they're, you know, there's different. It's not going through the same passage, I guess. It's just being pulled out. For a different article, though, it was also interesting is that you, the, the, the vag vaginal microbiome, the microbiota there changes and alters through pregnancy too. So much so that even though pregnancy is not measured by that, they found that, oh, you can read the bacteria, the vaginal bacteria, and see that a person's pregnant based on what kind of bacteria are present. Yeah, that is pretty intriguing. And so all these kind of things. And so like the most of the microbiome for a baby is developed in the first three years of life. And a lot of that comes from breast milk and different such and, um, you know, environment. And, you know, so that's where different diets, different things are going to affect a child growing up are going to affect. I mean, there's some connections. Well, do do allergies and asthma and different things. Are those affected by 
bacteria as well. Those so are some of the things that are being studied now. What about formula-fed babies versus bread? Is there anything that stays? there's definitely a difference? And and some of the at least there's focus now on well maybe in the future we'll be able to have some of those important bacteria once we realize what they are and put those into formula, which would still be better than again formula right now not it being a dead food filler. Well, not filler. I mean, it's got nutrients in it, but it's, it's you know, verse living, but there's bacteria breast in breast milk that are making a difference. And, um, but back to your, you know, good, bad bacteria. I mean, that's one of the things this simple article was talking about is like, there's good bacteria and there's bad bacteria. And some bacteria are both. And that's the, like, some germs are going to make you sick and others are going to help you and keep your immune system healthy. But then there's other ones that are like um, Helicobacter, um, which is, uh, or Helicobacter pylori, which is known to be responsible for causing stomach ulcers, but it is also good for throat health. So is that kind of like too much of it is bad, but a good balance of it is good? Well, or how the, these, can it is, be good and bad? This is how little we know about anything. Whereas this. Um, Helicobacter pylori was a very prominent in humans for a long period of time through diet or otherwise environmental. I don't, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the, the shift has been. There's not as many people that have that bacteria in their gut. And, and so by it's, it's decreased by what was it? It's, it's decreased by like a, a half of the world's population still has it. Wow. That's a lot. Whereas before most people had it. So it's dropped a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, but most people don't have symptoms for um, ulcers in the gut or anything like that. Um, but a small number of them do develop issues. And so why some are and others aren't questionable. But people that, you know, are treated with antibiotics for this specific bacteria are more likely to have diseases of the esophagus. Because they found out later on that, oh, this is also good for the throat. So it's good, it's bad, what is it? Who knows? It's very fascinating um, that there's just so much that there... One of the one of the quotes in the article where there's, there's a, a big body of evidence that Helicobacter has both biological cost and biological benefits. So it's probably that way with many different bacteria. And there's other research out there beyond this article or whatnot that that talk about how there may not even the classification that we have for bacteria and for microorganisms, but bacteria, they may shift and change genes more than is really classifying them specifically as one thing. They'll kind of take on different things as they go. So our classifications may be oversimplified as well or too overcomplicated, maybe. Just shows how much we know. Yeah, we don't know anything. So that's why I felt like. Yes, there are people that know way more than we know, but that's why it's it's interesting to talk about. We're not discussing this in the sense of we're experts or know anything about all this stuff. It's just very fascinating. This is the pop version, pop culture version of of the microbiota. Good way to state it. And uh, but then another one of the the or things was antibiotics can cause asthma and obesity. So there's more research out there that that these that antibiotics are actually affecting. We kind of discussed this before, but are you know, penicillin was was developed in 1928. Made a huge difference, but antibiotics overuse has created deadly strains, 
like the meta, um, MRSA that uh, I'll probably slip up trying to say, but the, the methicillin resistant staphylococcus. Wow. That's a mouthful. And I didn't even finish it. It's got Oris <laughs> at the end, but, um, I, I experienced that, you know, where I was in college and, and developed a staph infection on my legs and it, even with antibiotics or whatnot, it's like two rounds of antibiotics. It didn't go away because it was the 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 antibiotic resistant bacteria. So we we're creating these superbugs through over supposedly at least it's connected to over prescribing antibiotics for regular staph infection. Oh. Created these ones that are resistant to it. So they morph and change. And so you know, so there there's some evidence. I don't know how much evidence there is yet, but that things like asthma and obesity are affected by the microbiota of the gut, and that um, that antibiotics are also going to affect those things. So the other one is the other one in this article, which I don't they don't really go into any detail as to why um, it is this way because I I think there's evidence in both directions, but that store bought probiotics are overrated, and they're they're talking about that. Um, what can you give me an example of some store-bought pro- probiotics yeah like probiotic supplements like the single strains that have been researched to show some evidence of something and are being marketed heavily so it's kind of like a vitamin kind of like any of the pill? Yeah, well it's like anything i mean they're either like that probiotic coffee or that yogurt that has extra probiotics and different things no, no, like I that know, i know but i'm talking about supplements is that like a, a, in a pill those are form? supplements those are all supplements no, I know, but it's how... just the way that it is given. Yes. Yeah, so how are these you can probiotics, do, you get the probiotics given? and pills? Okay, I just have, I'm not very. But you can get probiotics in yogurts. You can get probiotics in, and we're talking about specific strains that have been added. To, okay, so to not stuff. something that naturally occurs. Just okay. Yeah, and so there's they're very well marketed. I mean, we we go on about probiotic marketing in this podcast as well, and it's like they're very well marketed, but there's still a lot that's not understood, and. According well, yeah. to we'll one use of the any excuse to market something, so people uh, purchase more. That's just yeah. But according reality. to one of the experts in this article, was that that they're or the source is that they're not of much benefit. Didn't go into any detail, so I can't really say that that's the case. I'm sure that there are benefits, but there's so much that's still not understood. And then there's the question of we have so many different bacteria in an ecosystem. How much difference is one little bacteria going to make? Makes sense. A whole other ecosystem of bacteria like devouring some fermented sauerkraut has a balanced ecosystem of sorts that might have a bit of more of effect well that's Again, where i kind of go back to just you know even with vitamins and such i and this is just a personal opinion and, and a decision but i would much rather eat the foods that give me that vitamin um supplement versus take a vitamin supplement in the a pill form because i can't imagine that it's possible to transfer all of the benefits that you'd get, for example, from a carrot into a pill because um, especially something that can last over time. It's just so I've always been the one to say, eat the food and, you know, if you, if you want, a, you know, a, a diverse uh, bacteria in your gut, eat, I mean, eat fermented foods, eat things that just have it versus take a supplement. Um, I mean, it's kind of... Yeah. Yeah, that's just my opinion on this. Well, and I do think that it is important to remember that there are people that are trying, are, are suffering from certain diseases or certain things that they're trying to figure out ways to make themselves feel better. And I think that's a different place than a healthy person making the decision to just eat food, real food, 
versus real fermented foods, different things like that. It's a lot easier to do that when a person's already at the point of arguably having a healthy gut microbiota and, and having, you know, not any issues to deal with. I think that it a lot of these complications in trying to make things better is partly from a need to feel better, people wanting to feel better. So I'm, I, I do have the luxury of, of being able to make a choice. Like I'm just going to eat, I'm going to eat food and not think about it too much as long as I'm just eating simple But foods. what's your argument with people that are not even feeling well and need the supplements? Are you stating that? Well, I think that there's maybe... Who's to say that eating real food for them isn't going to benefit them in much sure, better ways? Sure, but, than... but it, it's, it's, it's possible that there's, there, there is more that would need to be done for someone like that. Because, you know, going back to a microbiota, if someone's microbiota, again, there's other, other articles that link obesity to the microbiota in the gut. And in that sense, it's... Maybe someone's bacteria is all different and just eating sauerkraut or, or fermented foods or any kind of real it? foods isn't going to change that. Maybe it would. Well, I yeah, mean, but you're talking about there's... still using a real source of bacteria. In... But we, again, we don't know how much of that transfers in. So there's so much that we just don't understand about this stuff. But again, there can be things with cravings, possibly. I'm kind of stretching here, but that was another thing at the gut microbiome. Um uh, gut microbiota for for health conference uh, at the press conference they were talking about the link between the brain and the gut and how the gut actually is a communicator to the brain and it actually is uh, in not in control but it's actually a part of getting the serotonin the feel good chemicals in the brain to release okay. so there's communication between the two so it could be much more uh, like obesity or otherwise. It's like maybe there's some connection with some of that stuff. Again, I don't have any research to back this up, but maybe there's some connection with the the gut signaling something. Like, So if, if there's a bunch of bad bacteria that are kind of taking over and then they're signaling eat more junk or different things like that. Again, that's probably way oversimplified, probably way off, but there's just so many things that are going on. How the bacteria are affecting, I mean, it's down that gut feeling really actually means something. It's connected to the brain. Um, you know, in the brain at some point in our evolution or animal evolution decided that they're, they're going to take communication in both directions and, uh, just very fascinating stuff, you know, and, um, I still stick to my eat real stuff to compensate for, um, deficiencies. Yeah. And that's a simple way. I mean, if someone's healthy, I mean, that's how I'm happy to just eat, eat good food. Well, especially like I've heard, I mean, read and of course this is from a while back and I don't have any specifics, but you know, certain vitamins actually hurting people, not really benefiting them um, and recalls on vitamins. That stuff just freaks me out. It's just like, I just rather not go there. Yeah. But you get that same stuff with recalls on, on raw vegetables and different things like that. And well, yeah, but that's from... why, you know, grow your own garden, garden, be in charge of your food. I understand that's not possible for everyone, but, you know, I'm just going to that original source of benefits. Well, yeah. And if you don't mind, an, another one of the articles that was really kind of fascinating and going back to baby stuff with breast milk, that stuff was fascinating. Like how different, like even, even the breast milk itself, how a mother gives birth changes the microflora, the, the microbiota of the breast milk. And so when, you know, there, there's like 700 different bacteria in the breast milk, the, not the breast milk, but the, 
colostrum. Okay. So like the first yeah. stuff that comes out is like 700 different bacteria that that baby is is getting. So they're saying like the baby comes out clean, gets some introduction through birth, and then when it's fed, it gets like all of this bacteria in its body but right the, away. Yeah. And, the, and now again, 700 bacteria is more for like a, a regular vaginal birth. Exactly. So yeah, that that is very fascinating because I do wonder how a baby that was a C-section baby that is right away formula fed, just the comparison between the two. I would love to read something about that. Yeah. And I'm sure there's... there's... Because I feel like formula um, in our day and age is, you know, a lot of... I feel like a lot of people just think, oh, well, it's just another sub... It's just another option to breast milk, you know, if if... Um, and I understand Which some is a mothers. Valid reason. I mean, we're not gonna. I, and I understand some mothers, of course, don't have enough breast milk, and that's completely understandable, you know. Um, but, but it is thing... because it seems like from everything that you read, and, and a few things I read too, it, it seems that really breast milk is at this point they haven't been able to master the formula to the equivalent of the benefits in a breast milk. But the thing that's interesting with this stuff too is that it's like even if a an elective C-section is going to have a reduced amount of this bacteria in the breast milk. But that elective, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the difference is between these, but even an elective C-section is different than an emergency C-section. Maybe it's that it's farther along in the process. Probably. Like if, if it's the birth is already going, but you know, an elective C-section versus an emergency C-section versus a vaginal birth, they all have different balances and reductions in bacteria, depending on what kind of... So is it like the vaginal birth has the most elective, has general. the least emergencies in between? Yeah. And, and well, that that's makes just... sense because emergency, you're trying to go... You but know, isn't it just crazy route. that like, all these different bacteria... It is. Like... It's pretty... Fa- I did not know any of that. And um, it's just that... So the, these like the... mothers out there, if you are... I'm just joking. No, there's no recommendations here. This is just we're looking at we're looking Why, at. Why um, yes, I things. think people by now realize this is a very much an opinionated opinionated piece, and we're sharing what we have read. Well, this this so, I mean this was going off of of different articles. They'll all be in the show notes at firmup.com/slash/podcast/slash/twelve. So I mean, uh, read it, figure out what's. Oh, but yeah, we're not trying to be on. controversial here. We're just trying to share what we. But even things like like di- like the diversity of the breast milk is affected by overweight mothers so if a woman is overweight and again pregnancy not talking like if a if a if if she if gains more weight during more, pregnancy if she gains more she, weight during the pregnancy okay. that she wants or just obese wants you mean mother. what's recommended uh, yes exactly there you go um can affect things and uh, you know can even like add to risks of allergies and asthma and autoimmune diseases well that's probably because if you think about it someone who's gaining a lot more weight in their pregnancy than they should and of course there's no right answer it's like well there is an, an average of how much should be gained throughout pregnancy but if you think about it, if someone who's just gaining a lot of weight during pregnancy you know You're putting it, taxing it, on the system ex- in other well ways exactly i mean things. sure everyone you know a pregnant you know, pregnancy, you, you're going to get a female's going to gain weight. That's obviously going to happen. But if someone's gaining a lot of weight, they're probably also it's questioning like, well, what are they eating and how are they eating? Because that, of course, is going to affect gain weight just in general. And so, you know, and I've I've heard and I've I mean, a lot of people think being pregnant, it's a it's a good excuse to eat whatever a person wants. And that's completely not the case. It's not the case necessarily. You know, I would argue that, you know, while a person's pregnant, eating good stuff is essential for the baby. I, I mean, same reason, you know, 
we shouldn't really be drinking alcohol or you know, smoking cigarettes. Uh, yes. And I mean, sure, I think that babies always... are robust and they're going to survive. That's not, I mean, you know, but. Yes. And it's all very fascinating. It's the kind of stuff that's very interesting. We're not trying to make this a controversial podcast where, I mean, these people are very opinionated about things like, you know, breast milk versus no breast milk or different things like that. But it's interesting that there are there is data to show that there are differences. How those things really affect things is is you know still up in the air and still well, yeah, very it is preliminary. Because there are so many babies that are formula fed. C sections are very healthy kids. I mean, so yeah, I think there's more to come probably with this type of research and findings. Yeah, and so just to bring it a little bit more back to, again, I think this is all really fascinating and linked to to bacteria and linked to food and linked to fermented foods. To bring it a little bit more back to food, looking at the microbiota of the mouth, there was an NPR article recently. Um, ancient chompers were healthier than ours was the the title of that article. And it's, it goes into talking about how ancient humans, the prehistoric humans had great teeth. Hunters and gatherers had great teeth. Well, Hey, they didn't have cookies. That's what it looks like. The carbohydrates, the sugars of more modern times seems to have made a difference, but it even goes back farther than that. When it stopped being hunter gatherers and went into agriculture in general. We're not talking extra carbohydrates and extra sugars of the modern industrial world. We're talking just once they started moving to an agrarian society, humans' teeth started to go downhill. Well, I mean, but that's, that's, I I feel like I always knew that and I don't know why. I mean, if you think about what was eaten, I mean, it's like berries. It was really pure. I mean, even, yeah, even farming, I, I, you know, growing the food that you grow farming, it's not necessarily always the best. I mean, carbohydrates, wheat, breads. Again, you're talking about post-industrialized age. I mean, yes, there's some breads and different things, and but we're talking about as soon as the breads like weren't a part of the first they agriculture. I mean, yes, oh, it I was part I of it, but it was I, one of those like first foods. Threshing grain and different things, I think, came a little bit later, but it's okay. yes, it is all connected, and the. Post-industrialized age has made it worse or made, um, you know, the bacteria in the mouth be less balanced because of the extra carbs and extra sugars that we enjoy today. But even back then, I mean, it's like as soon as it switched to farming, gum disease and um, cavities started showing up. And I'm assuming they're looking at old skulls and different things like that because the teeth last and that's a good way to be like, hey, those teeth are in really bad shape. Well, I remember reading um, a book, and I do not know the title of the book right now, but it's this lady who traveled to different regions around the world um, and studied cultures and their food consumption. And I think it was a female. She had mentioned how there were cultures who obviously didn't brush their teeth. um, And I mean, their teeth would be like covered in green slime because of the diets that they had. But underneath that slime were perfectly healthy. Are you talking about Dr. Weston Price? I have no idea. Honestly, I mean, that was a, a male one? doctor, and and oh, it was a doc. I was. Are you sure? A dentist. There was a, that went around I feel and like did this that. Was a different book. There is another book that she's not. Is it a, a dentist though? And that's more recent, and yeah. it's a little bit different um, focus. It's not really on focused on teeth. It's more focused but it was on just hot the, spots. No, no, of and exactly. And but I, that it wasn't about teeth. It was. I think it was just mentioned that there was a, or maybe I'm maybe I'm mixing up my eye. This is yeah. I'm not very good at referencing what I've where I read stuff but yeah it was interesting because yeah they they talked about um 
how underneath the green slime were perfectly healthy teeth. So you're saying that we could just cover our teeth with slime? <laughs> no. It was the diets, obviously. But yeah, so it, of course diet has... We always have known that diets affect our teeth and Well, I don't know how much of that has really been known because what we're talking about is bacteria again. We're talking about the bacteria in the mouth. And the bacteria in the mouth are altered by what we eat. And not all bacteria in the mouth are bad. And again, that's some of those commercials. So what about brushing teeth? Is that kind of going against... You're brushing food particles off, which are... F- so what about mouthwash? Is that like killing the bacteria then? Should we not use mouthwash? Well, I am not one to say. I have no idea. But you do have those back uh, mouthwash commercials or whatnot. I remember in the 80s, yeah, 90s do, or what, 90s maybe that like the, all the bacteria popping and getting killed by the back. Like we want bacteria in our mouth. We need bacteria in our mouth. It's part of what keeps our teeth healthier. But it's... Again, focusing and looking at what are the bacteria. Oh, we didn't really think about the bacteria before. We thought that they were all bad. Now that we realize that some of them are good, how is our food affecting the good bacteria and making it a better place where bad bacteria? And less than just bad bacteria, it's more about there being fewer bacteria. It's just fewer bacteria thrive in the cultures that we have in our mouth. The environment that we have in our mouth is just good for certain bacteria, but not good for a diverse population that keeps healthy, kind of like the gut microbiota. How does our food affect that kind of stuff? All of these kind of things. There's other factors beyond food, I'm sure, but that seems to be a major one. I'm sure there will be more to come about this in the future years. You know, and, and, and one of the quotes from that article was that, you know, we're what we're really created is an ecosystem which is very low in diversity and full of opportunistic path- pathogens that have jumped in to utilize the resources which are now free. So we have, you know, especially if someone's not brushing their teeth or different things, you know, there's potential for, I mean, there's probably a balance. Maybe brushing teeth isn't helping everything. I was going to say, wouldn't it be funny if in like 50 years from now, don't brush your teeth. It's bad for your teeth. I'm kidding. I don't think that would happen, but. Well, I mean, it, it very well could. I mean, in, Use in, sauerkraut I don't to think wash 50 years, teeth. I don't think 50 years. I think I'm, we're talking more like maybe in a thousand years, people won't be brushing their teeth anymore. We'll see. Um, but it's, it's a prominent because there's like the dominance of harmful bacteria. The same as someone that takes antibiotics and it messes up their gut. I don't know how antibiotics mess up the mouth or whatnot, but we're definitely having things um, there. You know, one person is saying that our mouth is in a constant state of disease. So we have an, a constant autoimmune um, re- response to oral disease and and that possibly even oral bacteria. The, it seems like it's kind of a hot thing to say, popular thing to say that anything is related to obesity and you know, heart disease, because those are big popular things, but there may be links from the mouth to those as well. But I feel like all of this, all of that kind of links together. So of course it's going to all be linked to possibly those things because you're gut bacteria, your mouth bacteria, all of that, they're separate things, but they're all interconnected and they're all going to affect the outcome of everything. It's kind of all, they're all linked together in my mind. Well, I think that's kind of where science is going and seeing that it's not just one thing because it's not just the microbiota of the gut it's not just the microbiota of the mouth it's not the ear it's not anything our entire body is way more complex than we have any comprehension of we're starting to maybe look at it a little differently as opposed to isolating things out oh i'm glad that's happening yeah it's very fascinating and i think that again there's going to probably be fluctuation between isolating things and looking at things generally uh right now going back to the direct set yogurts i mean it works in commercial environments it doesn't work so well if you want to be at home perpetuating yogurt forever you need the complex not just the few 
that they decided 100 years ago were the ones that made up the taste of yogurt. Regardless, I am sure eating fermented foods is beneficial. Whether it's beneficial or not, it tastes good. So it tastes good. It potentially is has health benefits. I don't think potentially. I, I think it has. I'm not a doctor or scientist. But think about what they might know in 100 years from it's, now. Fermented foods are alive foods. I think they, one argument is that we... Humans have been fermenting food for thousands of years, so the cultures and humans and people who have survived this long have kind of evolved slowly with it over thousands of years with the bacteria that we get from fermented foods. So there is arguably some balance that we've kind of created, you know, with 10 to 1 balance of bacteria to human cells. Oh, I understand. The bacteria have some kind of connection with all of this. And so fermented foods are a connection to bacteria, live and active bacteria. How much of that actually affects anything? How much does a person really need to eat? Maybe they need to eat a lot. So again, another reason to ferment your own foods because buying a bunch of live and active fermented foods costs a lot of money. If you got the money, do it. But making it is also very, very exciting. And next episode, we will get more into a specific topic on fermented foods. So thank you for kind of taking this trajectory off and, and it's just very it's fascinating all, stuff. It's all related though. It's all interconnected. Isn't that what we were just talking about? It's all interconnected. So this is about fermented foods. It's just... A different viewpoint. Yeah. So if you would like to look at any of the articles that we have been talking about today, um, and look at the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 12. Way to go, Brandon. And you can also contact us at podcast at firmup.com. You can also find us on Twitter at firmup. On Facebook, the same. Facebook.com slash firmup. We're, we're on Google Plus too, but again, that's such a long string of numbers that just search for firmup on <laughs> Google Plus. It's all right. No one really likes us on firm, uh, on Google Plus because uh, not that many people use firm, uh, people use firmup. People don't use Google Plus. But again, something... I, I'm I really if you like this show go to iTunes and give us a rating be an honest rating give us a horrible rating if you want just get like you know an honest rating or like, you know if it's a horrible rating you can email us and give us your honest no put it on I'm iTunes joking because I want like because we want to make the show better we also want the show to get out to more people and so and uh, we also want your opinions yes and so we will listen write us you know we will um, yeah, write us podcast at firmup.com. If you want a, so here's my uh, my my um, thought really quickly. If you want a long response back, write to Brandon. Brandon, where can they reach you? Podcast at firmup.com, and they can reach you there too. Okay, but then say Brandon, I have a question for you. He'll give you a very very long response. If you would like a shorter, more simple, quick response, you know, Daniela, and then I will respond. I can make short responses too rarely thank you firm up all the way <laughs>